0: find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside The Box of Oddities. Well, today is my
3: birthday, and I received what I would consider to be one of the best gifts that a man could ever ask for. And uh, that, of course, is my beautiful wife, uh, Cat Walls, but also today she was almost forced to learn how to say this phrase in spanish pardon me my scissors happen to be on your porch roof
1: (laughs) i i drew a really nice picture for you Mm -hmm. i made you a card I made you made sure you had coffee when you got up this yeah, morning. Yeah. And this is what you want to talk
2: about? Yeah,
3: no, it's just a, it's one of those perfect moments. I don't think anybody has ever had to say that in any language. right? Uh, but uh, yeah, cat was hanging. <laughs> she let me sleep in a little bit late today. And while I was doing that, she was hanging a bird feeder on our balcony, which and, is
1: made of concrete.
3: Yeah, everything here is concrete. The walls, the ceilings, it's crazy. Uh, But the balconies are kind of terraced. Mm -hmm. So the one right below us is not only below us, but in front of us. And uh, while Kat was attempting to hang her bird feeder, she dropped her scissors on their roof.
1: I retrieved them,
3: though. That was clever.
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, I tied a rope to a hook from like one of those eye hook thingies, Mm -hmm. and then I lowered it down, and I uh, scooped the scissors up with the hook and then pulled it back up to to our balcony.
3: It was like an international uh, carnival game. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's like one of those crane machines where you reach in and... Anyway, it was uh, an amazing thing to wake up to, and, and I thank you for that. Anyway, best birthday ever so far. (laughs) And now I've got kind of a gothic story for you. I think you might enjoy this.
1: Ooh, fun.
3: Hidden in the dusty attic of the Willard Asylum lay secrets of a bygone era, remnants of a time when society's understanding of mental health was rudimentary at best and extremely inhumane at worst.
1: I don't think I like where this is going.
3: This discovery would tell stories of lives forgotten, voices that have been silenced, identities that have been erased. Our story begins nestled amidst the picturesque backdrop of New England's Finger Lake region. This asylum, the Willard Asylum, was an imposing structure, and it was designed for, quote, the chronic insane.
1: Masturbators.
3: Among others, it was a monolithic representation of society's misunderstanding fear and deep-seated prejudices against mental health in the 19th and early 20th century. The establishment of the Willard Asylum in 1869, it originally was conceived with a sense of optimism and a desire to reform. The goal was to transfer those deemed, quote, incurable from the poorhouses and jails, which is where they kept them, to a dedicated facility which in theory would provide specialized care. Well, that's nice. And while the initial intentions were supposed to be humane, what actually happened, the subsequent practices, and the realities of life inside the institution soon overshadowed those aspirations. By the turn of the 20th century, the Willard Asylum had become the largest asylum in the United States. It housed thousands of patients. This resulted in, of course, overcrowded wards where patients were often, they, they felt more imprisoned than cared for.
1: Right, and that was kind of the point, was to stop that from being the case. Yes.
3: Personal space was a luxury, and many were confined to their beds, some chained, or to small confined areas for most of the day. The vastness of the asylum grounds, which initially was meant to provide a serene environment, instead just contributed to a pervasive sense of isolation sadly families rarely visited those who were at the asylum either because of the distance or because of societal shame associated with having a family member who was institutionalized for many admission to willard was basically a life sentence of solitude was a pretty shitty place to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, to sum up.
3: The lack of understanding of mental health conditions led to a series of treatments that would be now deemed and are now deemed barbaric. Electroconvulsive therapy that was administered without any type of anesthesia. It was common, in fact. Lobotomies which we all know was a surgical procedure involving the removal or damaging of parts of the brain, often with an ice pick right above your eye.
1: And sometimes it was just like a jab and mix around kind of motion. Yes.
3: Not real scientific. It was seen as revolutionary at the time, but it left many, many patients in a vegetative state. The unchecked power within the institution's walls led to countless tales of abuse. Patients, especially those who resisted or who were seen as, quote, problematic, faced physical punishment and were often placed in restraints or in isolated, quiet rooms, they were called. There were also reports of sexual abuse and other forms of exploitation. It painted a pretty grim picture of this place. Beyond the physical abuses, the stripping away of personal identity was one of the most profound tragedies at the Willard Asylum. When you were admitted, personal belongings were taken from you. You were assigned a number. Your name no longer mattered. No. This dehumanization both symbolically and literally reduced individuals to mere cogs in the machinery of this vast institution. That's awful. It's bad enough that you're being forced to go to this place where nobody will come visit you, but then they're going to say, no, you don't have a name anymore. You're number 724369 or whatever the case may be. As the chapters of the Willard Asylum for the Chronic Insane closed in the late 20th century, the ripple effects of its history began to surface in ways nobody had anticipated. The transition from a center of anguish to a vacant relic was a stark one, yet the legacy of its existence was far from being fully understood. The closure of the Willard Asylum took place in the 1980s, so it was about a hundred years that this place was operating. And this was reflective of a nationwide shift in mental health care philosophy and policy at the time, deinstitutionalization backed by advancements in psychiatric medicine and an emphasis on community-based care, that brought an end to large-scale institutions like the Willard. Yet while the patients were released or transferred and staff moved on, the buildings and the grounds of the Willard stood in limbo. They became an eerie monument to the past with its vast halls echoing memories of those who once roamed them. Fast forward to 1995. It's been about 10 years since the place is closed. The Willard Asylum's grounds were being surveyed for potential use as a training facility for the Department of Correctional Services. And a discovery was made that would throw the spotlight back on the abandoned institution.
1: Oh, was it bodies?
3: Not bodies. No? Hidden away, in the dusty attic of one of the buildings were over 400 suitcases it was though time had stood still the suitcases some dating back to the 1910s were undisturbed their contents preserved for decades
1: they were what the patients came with that yeah. they were taken from them
3: oh yep. When patients were admitted to the Willard Asylum, their belongings, as I mentioned, were typically taken away. They were cataloged and stored. And this was a standard procedure in many asylums, meant to ensure that the patients didn't possess items that might harm them or other people. Often these belongings were never returned, either because the patients had no family to claim them.
1: Or they died.
3: Or they died.
1: In a terrible, lonely place.
3: It was surmised that these stored suitcases were eventually moved to the attic for long-term storage because one of those two things had taken place. The attic a place where they would remain untouched for decades. While the discovery was startling in its own right, It was the contents of the suitcases that provided a deeply emotional and intimate glimpse into the lives of these patients now long forgotten, many whose names we've forgotten. Each suitcase told a unique story, giving a human face to individuals otherwise lost in the annals of psychiatric history. From personal letters to clothing to photographs and cherished memories, the suitcases revealed a rich tapestry of lives that had been interrupted. For many historians, researchers, and even the general public, the discovery of these suitcases was a profound moment of reckoning. It emphasized the humanity of these patients, highlighting the profound tragedy of their confinement and the loss of their personal identities. Now, a researcher, a man named John Crispin, was captivated by this unexpected discovery, and he took on the meticulous task of photographing and cataloging each suitcase and its contents.
1: Oh, what a heartbreaking project that must have been.
3: It's now known as the Willard Suitcase Project. And his work revealed a mosaic of individual histories. For example, a book of poems, hinting at a lover's quarrel, sewing kits, handmade clothing, which pointed to a simple domestic life, photographs, capturing fleeting moments of happiness and sorrow. Among the suitcases, one belonged to a woman named Dimitri, who arrived at the asylum in 1953. Her suitcase contained traditional Ukrainian clothing, a nod to her heritage and a life before Willard. Another belonged to a guy named Frank. Frank was a World War I veteran. His suitcase held his military uniform and his medals, which of course suggested a past of bravery and service. Taken away from him, For many descendants of Willard's patients, they have been found, many of them. The discovery offers a rare window into their family histories. One suitcase, for instance, contained a collection of meticulously painted porcelain dolls, which suggested its owner's penchant for artistry and attention to detail. Another had letters written in elegant cursive discussing world events of the time, hinting that this person was educated and perhaps pretty well-traveled. These relics from the past offer an unparalleled look into the personal histories of the Willard Asylum patients. The simple things like a comb or a piece of jewelry or a family photograph, which might seem mundane, uh, but for these patients were reminders of their humanity, love, and connections. And they've been able to track down many of the, uh, their descendants today. For many families, these suitcases have become touchstones bridging the gap between generations and serving as a means of reconnecting with long-lost relatives. But moreover, the suitcases stood as a silent but powerful testimony against the narrative for those institutionalized at Willard were merely insane individuals devoid of history or character. They underscore the richness and the depth of each patient's life and it challenges prevailing misconceptions and biases. The willard suitcase project serves as a haunting but essential reminder of a time when understanding and compassion were in short supply it underscores the importance of seeing beyond a diagnosis and recognizing the humanity in every individual the willard suitcase project through projects like these this helps to ensure that the stories of those who were silenced find their voice
1: is this something that you can go see or is it only in photographs? Because if it were an exhibit, I think that would be incredibly powerful.
3: I think it's mostly just a photographic exhibit. There are several books. I bought a book on this, uh, gosh, seven or eight years ago, and it goes into even greater detail. It helps, perhaps a little bit, finding some meaning in their pain and to hope for a better tomorrow. My source information, the history of the Willard Asylum for the Chronically Insane. That uh, came from the Journal of Psychology. Treatment practices in the 19th century mental institutions from the Medical Historical Review. Willard Asylum's Forgotten Souls, an article in the New York Times. Families reconnect with lost relatives through Willard Suitcases, NPR. And John Crispin's Willard Suitcase Project. His website is willardsuitcases.com.
1: I can't tell if I would like to see that or not.
3: I, I would, I understand your trepidation, but um, I yeah, I'd be fascinated to see these little glimpses and perhaps have it paint a little bit of a portrait of who these people were, even though during their last few years on this planet, their identity had been totally erased.
1: Yeah, maybe I just need to be in a uh, stronger emotional state. <laughs> yeah,
3: we'll work up to it.
2: that thing in the middle
3: you know when you look in your dog's eyes that feeling of affection that you instinctively have for them research shows that domesticated dogs have evolved muscles around the eyes that allow them to make quote infant-like expressions that specifically appeal to humans this prompts a nurturing response the study shows that puppy eyes helped domesticated dogs bond with humans This same muscle is absent in wolves, their closest relatives.
1: Laura sent us a message on Instagram. Is it a box of oddities effect if I, too, have been terrorized by a cat-like beast? Is it considered being terrorized by a cat like Beast if your cat throws up on your pillow first thing in the morning? Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was an included photo of said cat like Beast on said pillow, sans throw up. Thank you for not including the throw up, by the way.
3: Yeah, we appreciate that. Yeah. Very much. Amy sent an email. I've had several boo effects while listening to your podcast, but I, I usually forget to write them down. I decided to send you today's because it just felt so random. We have a local Shakespeare theater company that is phenomenal. In addition to the usual Shakespeare plays, they often perform classic works of fiction, as well as new or lesser known plays. Yesterday, I bought tickets to their next show starting in a couple of weeks. Today, I listened to Box of Oddities episode 568. Kat was talking about how the term gaslight originated from a play of the same name. Guess what play I just bought tickets for? No. What are the odds? Anyway, thanks for always keeping me entertained. Amy.
1: Allison sent a message. I am Maliseet. You mentioned us. Yay. (laughs) Love you guys. Now, you know, I totally get it. Um, There was a time, I think I was in middle school when um, Maine was the answer to a question on Jeopardy, or rather the question to an answer on Jeopardy, Mm -hmm. and I freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> no one ever talks about Maine. Allison also was, by the way, writing from the county.
3: Ah, a rustic. I think that's a, a native word that means, holy crap, it's a long drive to get there.
0: <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
2: With Kat and Jethro gilligan talk. What do you
3: have for me, my love?
2: Gas. Besides gas.
3: (laughs) Best birthday ever.
1: Big thanks to Leo for sending me this topic suggestion. It's the Boleskine House. The Boleskine House is a historic property located on the southeastern shore of Loch Ness in Scotland, in Boleskine, a united parish in the county of Inverness, Scotland. And if I sound weird, I want to mention it's because I'm laying on the floor, on my stomach, and I don't normally record this way.
3: She hurt her back.
1: My back hurts real, real bad.
3: Ask her how she hurt her back. Stop it. Never mind, go ahead.
1: The parish was formed in the 13th century with a kirk, or a church, and graveyard also built around this time. It's assumed there must have been an earlier church near to where the present Boleskin Church is, for the locality was called Drum Temple, or the Ridge of the Church. There was a war that took place here in the 18th century. In the 17th century, Minister Thomas Houston was claimed to have been tasked with laying animated bodies back in their graves at Boleskine Graveyard.
3: Laying animated bodies? So like zombies?
1: Yeah, apparently there was a local wizard. And you know how trouble always starts with that phrase. Apparently there
3: was this local wizard. (laughs) Yeah, never ends well
1: and Cruniar Frazil or a Fraser crowner, or maker of circles. And this wizard is said to have raised the bodies of the dead from that graveyard, which everyone apparently decided was not cool. <laughs> so the minister, Thomas Houston, took on the battle with the wizard and was able to put the dead back to rest again. I just realized that I'm laying right where you spilled your coffee earlier, and that's why uh, my stomach is now wet.
3: Sorry about that.
1: So the bodies were put back to rest. The minister, Thomas Houston, was eventually buried in that graveyard, but it's not known if the wizard was as well. Now, the description of the old kirk or the church at Boleskine by Bishop Forbes, who visited in 1762, said of it, the poorest edifice of any kind I ever looked upon. The churchyard is open without any walls where you can see plenty of human bones above ground.
3: No. And the
1: floor of the kirk is overspread with them. Dogs are seen carrying away the human bones in their teeth. The mans is a low, pitiful thatched house without one bit of glass in the windows, having wooden boards or shutters. The history of the space where a Beleskin house was obviously uh, built on a troubled history, wrought with can only assume or unsettled spirits and all over bad vibes. I mean, a thatched house with wooden shutters—gross. <laughs> The Beleskin House was built in the late 18th century by Archibald Fraser as a private residence. It was named after the Beleskin Estate, which dates back to the 13th century. The mansion was constructed on the grounds where that church once stood. As the story goes, during a congregation, a devastating fire broke out and claimed the lives of everyone inside. This event is said to be the first of this home's problematic chapters.
3: Yeah, that's not a good start.
1: No, it fuels the fire uh, of the eerie atmosphere surrounding the Boleskine House. This home is classically styled. It's a Georgian villa. It commands a picturesque view of Loch Ness. And you might recognize the name of this property because we've talked about it before. Alistair Crowley purchased this property a day shy of the anniversary of his first initiation into the Golden Dawn on November 17, 1899.
3: Oh, same house?
1: Same house. Okay. The house was purchased from Mary Rose Hill Burton, a professional artist. And the house hadn't been for sale, but Crowley claimed he'd been scouring Britain in the pursuit of a suitable property. One of the big things Boleskine had going for it was its relative isolation. Crowley wrote, But a magical house is as hard to find as a magical book to publish. I scoured the country in vain. Not until the end of August 1899 did I find an estate which suited me. So he made an offer on the property. Burton replied that she had absolutely no interest in selling. But when Crowley responded by doubling his initial offer to twice the value of the home, she reluctantly accepted. Crowley then started referring to himself as Lord Boleskine, which um, I inserted an eye-rolling emoji in my notes, um, just so you know. I'm sure the locals loved that too. Crowley then used the house as a temple for his magical practices and performed various rituals there. During his time at Belaskin House, Crowley reportedly conducted a series of rituals known as the Abramelin Operation. It was aimed at summoning his guardian angel and these rituals along with other practices added to the house's reputation for occultism. And with that came the idea that the house itself had taken on the energy of that magic. Spelled with a K. So Crowley did that so that you'd know it was different from like stage magic. It was Crowley magic. Magic with a K. Wink! Now according to legend, Aleister Crowley allegedly summoned 115 spirits, including Lucifer himself, during an intricate magical ritual. Magic with a K. However, before he could complete the necessary banishing rituals, he was abruptly called to Paris by the Grand Master of the Golden Dawn. And that was the secret society to which he belonged. Now you'd think that banishing the spirits first would be like on the list of things to do before you left the house. Yeah, You know, check the stove, make sure it's off, lock all the doors banished spirits
3: yeah you don't want to return and have like lucifer sitting in your den with his feet up smoking your cigars
1: right all of your alcohol is suspiciously now half water
3: (laughs) that sounds so much like lucifer (laughs)
1: snacks are gone this unexpected departure meant that some of these summoned spirits were left unbanished and it's believed that these unresolved summonings are responsible for the strange occurrences and paranormal phenomenon now associated with Beleskin. Additionally, some people have also claimed that Crowley placed a curse on anyone who dared delve into his private life even after his death.
3: Well, that's a dickish thing to do.
1: So Beleskin has gained this reputation for being not just spooky, but being haunted. Some believe that the rituals performed left this lingering presence or negative energy. Some specific instances include shadowy figures, unexplained sounds, feelings of unease or heaviness, and it seems to affect everyone who spends time there. Following the devastating First World War, Hollywood actor George Raft became associated with the Boleskine House. He was actually entangled in a very strange scandal involving a scheme that sold a non-existent pig farm Located on the grounds of Baleskin, and he would just sell this non-existent pig farm over and over again. It seems really weird. Anyway, Major Edward Grant then took over ownership of the house, but tragically, he ended his own life with a shotgun that was once housed in Aleister Crowley's bedroom. After that, a newlywed couple moved into Baleskin, but their happiness was short-lived. Within a month, the wife went blind, and because of her blindness, her husband then left her. So she was left wandering around the property by herself, all blind and stuff.
3: A lot of dickish behavior associated with this estate.
1: Yes. So then in the 1970s, the house was purchased by Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin guitarist. Right. Initially, he believed that the dilapidated house would provide an inspiring environment for songwriting, but it was too dilapidated. So he left it in the care of his friend Malcolm Dent. He wanted Malcolm to fix her up, but not too much. You know, he still wanted that Crowley vibe. So Malcolm Dent moved into the home, and strange occurrences soon plagued him. He'd hear unsettling noises emitting from the hallway in the middle of the night and when he'd go out to investigate they would stop but then when he'd go back into his room the sounds would begin again. One night he was startled awake by what he believed to be the sound of a wild animal snortling and banging on his bedroom door. Nope. This guy I love so much, because he was like, am I going to go investigate this? Absolutely not. (laughs) He just stayed in bed, and then the next morning checked it out, and there was nothing in the hallway, no sign that anything had been in the hallway. He said that that night was the most terrifying night of his life, and quote, whatever was there was pure evil. Guests to the home also reported similar experiences panicked as they claim to have been attacked by some kind of devil, experiencing doors slamming open and closed, chairs moving around on their own, and rugs rolling up on their own. That would scare the bejesus out of me. I the I have this weird fear of being rolled up in a rug, and I just, ugh, I don't like it at all. As I said, at this point, Beleskin is already in a state of disrepair, and unfortunately suffered more damage over the years. In 2015, a fire broke out resulting in the destruction of a substantial portion of the building and since then it's remained empty. The connection between the supernatural and the occult history of Baleskin and the fire that occurred there adds an intriguing layer to the property's lore. Did Crowley being summoned away before he could complete the necessary banishing rituals, leaving some spirits unbanished, curse the property forever? Was the property already cursed because of that wizard guy who knows? But the fire that took place at Baleskin is often seen as a significant event in the property's history linked with those supernatural forces. The cause of the blaze has officially been revealed as unknown. Mm-hmm. And it's added to the house's mystique and notion that there may be a dark and mysterious energy surrounding Baleskin House.
3: I think Lucifer fell asleep smoking a cigar. That was the cause. <laughs> Don't smoke in bed.
1: Right? Never. Never. Do you know how hard it is to get tobacco out of linen? Gross. I got my information from Graveyards of Scotland, Far Out Magazine, an article from the University of Gothenburg, Academia.edu, and Atlas Obscura.
3: That was fascinating.
1: Oh, thank you.
3: Look at this episode. Two stories about creepy buildings.
1: Hmm. Sometimes that happens. And I'm still really impressed that what is, what episode number is this? 560 something?
3: 69, I think. 569.
1: Never once have we come to the table with the same story. Yeah. And only once has one of us come to the table with a story that's already been done.
3: That we know of. That we know of. Yeah.
1: I can't keep track of this shit. My back hurts. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and you're lying in, in coffee. And
1: I'm lying in coffee.
3: So we got to get you dried off and in the tub. So <laughs> we'll see you guys next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
3: Fly it proudly, a beautiful freak.
2: And so let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. Theboxofoddities.com. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.
1: On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your
2: podcasts.